Because I don't know if you realize it or not, but we live in a very, very dark, demonic, evil world. And I'm afraid what has happened to many of us who call ourselves Christian, and I'll be preaching to everybody in here, but I want to talk uh, probably in a pretty special way to us fellows. I think we've lost what it means to stand up and lead our families. And the fact that as Christians, we've been called to spiritual warfare. You don't hear a lot of talk like that these days. I believe we ought to be kind and gentle, loving and nice. But there also comes a time when you put your foot down and you say, that's as far as we're going. And we're not going to go any farther than that. And you have a Joshua moment. Well, you say, I can't speak for people outside my address. I can't talk for anybody else. But as for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. Now, I'm not going to Joshua today, but he's a good illustration of where I think we ought to start because I think gospel, if we're going to stand for it, requires a little bit of grit. And I'm afraid that a lot of us need to have a, a, a gut check and a grit check because it's not any more comfortable to be a real Christian. A friend of mine and I were talking on Thursday about the fact we live in a post-Christian America. There was a time being an American and being a Christian, they ran on what looked like parallel tracks, but they never were the same. They just looked similar. But now our culture is starting to veer and it's starting to cost more to stay on this track. You've been called to a fight. I've been called to a fight. But if we're going to fight, we've got to fight the right way. So with that thought in mind, I want to invite you to turn with me into the epistle of Jude next door neighbor to Revelation Jude verses 1 through 4 as you turn there and you think about what we're going to read in a moment this comes from the pen of Jude the half brother of Jesus this guy's a leader in the early church and he's writing between the mid and late first century after Christ has died he has been buried he's ascended and time has passed the gospel has gone out and now there are people popping up, these false teachers who are starting to twist and change and taint and pervert the gospel, the message of our faith. And Judah's about to write to this unknown audience and encourage them that you need to stand up and contend earnestly, fight faithfully for the faith that has been delivered to us once and for all, not to ever be changed, not to ever be twisted, not to be added to or to be taken from. So if you're there, let's stand together if you're able. Jude 1 through 4. Now, the reason I said Jude 1 through 4 is because there's no chapter. <laughs> I said to the group when I preached this passage last, if your Jude has more than one chapter, we're going to raise an offering and buy you a Bible. Because <laughs> whatever you've got is not a Bible. But this is what it says, reading from the New American Standard. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing to you, that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, 
those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for today, for the privilege that is mine and ours to be in your house, to be in worship today at Hillcrest, and how I pray that you bless and you open our ears, that we would hear your word today and receive it in our heart, that you would stir the, the fire of revival in those of us that know you, and that you would ignite the hearts of those who don't, that they might be saved, that Lord, today, above all, you and you alone would be magnified. We thank you, we love you, and Lord, we adore you, knowing that first you loved us and you love us best. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As you're seated and you think about this call we have to fight for the faith, that's why we have churches. That's why we have these outposts all over our town, many with steeples on top. And our churches are not meant to be social clubs where we gather and we have a good time and we go home. We actually come here to be equipped for the fight. We don't come here to hold up. We don't come here to hide. We don't come here to shelter. We come here to receive what God has for us for today and the days ahead so we can go out and actually go about being the church. Because the church is not a location. It's a people. It's a body of people who've come to realize that only Jesus Christ can save and they have turned their lives over to him in allegiance and in love and whatever he wants to do, that's what we do. And one of those things he left us here to do, he told the disciples, you occupy until I come. And occupy does not mean hold up space. It's a military term. It means you hold the line and where you can, you push the line forward. So as you read what Jude is writing here, you get to see not just what comes from his pen, but what drips from his heart. And as we unpack this idea of fighting for the faith, three basic issues and principles that run out of verses one through four that we'll talk about today. Here's the first one, the kind of people who fight for the faith. One of the worst problems we have in the average local church is that we feel like all the work is somebody else's to do. Now, I know in a wonderful place like this, that's not the case. I don't believe that Hillcrest suffers from the same thing I watch in so many places where you have the faithful few. Well, you have many who will attend, but not quite as many will put their hands to the work. But this idea here that Jude is going to lay out for us gives us a very good picture of the kinds of people that the Lord uses to advance his kingdom and to stand for the faith. It's in verse 1. In verse 1, you have an intro of who this author is and a little bit about who his audience is, and it's enough for you and me to see God uses these kinds of people. First guy, Jude, the author, who is he? Well, what does he say about himself? Keep reading. It says in verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude identifies himself by a word that means he's the slave of Jesus. That's not a real in vogue word right now. Did you get uncomfortable? Good. It's not, but the Bible doesn't change. Jesus Christ did not call us to be his equal. 
We don't get to stand up shoulder to shoulder beside him. We are below him. We are beneath him because we are nothing but man. He is God and man. And Jude says of himself, I see myself as someone who is completely dependent on him. This means the author sees himself as being completely under the control of Jesus Christ. No position to barter, no position to argue, but solely in the position to do what the master calls and wants him to do. If we're going to be any better after Jubilee, this must be our attitude if we're going to be good stewards of this faith. We need to be growing in our own faith so that we are continually being shaped by the Holy Spirit to adopt this kind of attitude about ourselves and about the Lord. If you're like me, I like being in control. Shake your head like that. I mean, I like being the guy who can call the shots. I like positions of authority. I like to be the one saying this is what we do. But here's the truth. None of us really have it. If God says, give my air back, all of us stop breathing. If God takes that thump out of our chest, our heart stops. Why? Because he is in complete control. He is Lord and we are his slaves. That's not all Jude says about himself, though. He says, I'm brother of James. Now, if you start doing some biblical research, you find out there's a lot packed in that one little phrase, and I probably would have started with that one. Because that idea of him being brother of James, you cross-reference Matthew 13, 55, you find out this Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, again, you guys are very deeply spiritual people, and I'm probably not so much like you. Uh, I would be different than Jude because I'd probably name drop on the front end. Man, do you realize, bro, Jesus is my hair brother, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you, you want me to do that? I mean, I'm, I'm Jesus' brother. I mean, you, <laughs> you, you want me to do what, man? Do you know who my brother is? I'd probably have me a shirt for every day with that across the front. <laughs> but that's not where he starts. Why? Because, see, Jude knows that he's not just half-brother of Jesus, even more so, he's a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. Because, see, during Jesus' earthly life, he didn't believe in him. Lived in the same house, sometimes ate from the same table, and he did not believe in who Jesus was until after Christ had died. And so I believe he's more shaped by the idea that I'm a sinner saved by his grace than a sibling who sat at the table. I think something that would help all of us is never get over how he changed your life. See, I'm, I'm cool with being called James's brother because we're just two people. We're two regular guys. But Jesus Christ is not as regular as we are. He's a different kind of man. He's the God man. Not God, but he's God and all of that. Completely divine and completely human all at one time in one place. And he says that is who he is to me. I'm his bondservant. I'm his slave and I am brother of James. We're not worthy of great thrones. Jesus is. We're not worthy of great seats at head tables. Jesus is. He's worthy of glory and honor. And if he is satisfied to give us any position 
of any prominence, then we should give that back to him in sacrificial service for as long as we live. Because it doesn't matter if you're the bum or the banker. It takes the same grace to save both of them. Whether you live on an estate or under a bridge, if you're saved, it's by grace. And those are the kinds of people that the Lord will use. That's the author, but keep reading. He talks about his audience. We don't have the, the joy of knowing the exact location that he writes to, but we know something about the people. He says, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Three descriptives about these people to whom he writes. First of all, they're called. And the idea of called there is not called unto vocation. That calling is unto salvation. Folks who've been born again, people who heard him call them from the darkness of their sin into the light of their salvation. And he says, you have been called. The first qualification we need for people in this army is folks who are born again. Listen, just because somebody is great at doing something in the world, that does not qualify them for work inside the Lord's church. Our first and most pressing question needs to be, is this person born again? But how seldom do we ask that question? I think about years ago when I was pastoring in Starkville, Mississippi, and a, a, a search committee called me about a friend of mine. And they were asking me all these questions. And they went down a list of these different things about, you know, managerial style and what kind of leader is this guy? And after about 40 minutes on the phone with this chairman, he'd never got to the question I wanted to get to. And I said, sir, with all due respect, I appreciate every question you asked me, but I could get that on an application at Walmart. I said, you have yet to ask me about, do I think this man is born again and do I think he's been called of God? Are you hearing me? I mean, you're here and, and the audio's on, but are you catching what I'm putting down? We need to know that people have had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, not just some facts rattling around in their head and they can quote a few scriptures, but have you been born again? Have you really been saved? He says, you've been called. That calling is a call of salvation. He goes on about these same people. He says, beloved in God the Father. Now, depending upon your translation, some say you beloved in the Father. Some have a, a, a different rendering there, and they say you're sanctified in the Father. You pig. And I don't even have to break the outline. Either you're cared for him or you're cleaned by him, but both of them are by him. But I do want to take the rendering here in the New American Standard, beloved in God. The very idea of beloved here is love, the word for God, self-sacrificial love toward those of us. The very idea here is that God cares about you. One reason that so many of us get intimidated by working for the Lord is we have a, a, a complete misunderstanding of how God is. God's not some mean old man sitting in the sky waiting for a reason to strike you down. You say, how do you know? Well, first of all, the Bible, here's number two. If that's, if that's God's nature, every one of us have given God enough reason and opportunity for him to have pulled the trigger already. I mean, when David said, I was, I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity, the idea is from the moment of conception, I have been wicked enough for God to destroy me, but he didn't. Because he's the God of grace. 
Scripture says things like this about God. He set his affection on you. Do you get that word, affection? Amen. You're beloved of God. You're cared for. Now, some of your life situations may not feel like God cares very much. That's why you don't look at situations to dictate and define God's love for you. You look to cross, the cross and the scripture. And there you learn how much God cares about you because no matter how badly you're suffering, you're not alone. No matter how rough the storms of life are, he still cares for you. He will never abandon you. He'll never leave you alone. You may not feel him, but he's always there because he cares. See, God wants to work through the people he calls and the people he cares for. And he goes on and Jude says something else about these folks. He says, you're kept for Jesus Christ. So you've been called, you're cared for, and you're kept. Man, that's good stuff. Because I'm going to tell you, I've, I've done enough in my life since I met Jesus. That if my salvation was banked on my ability to keep his word, I'm out. If, if my going to heaven is about how well I can dot the I's and cross the T's after I've confessed Christ, I'm out. You do understand as a Christian, we're not getting better. Yeah. Well, we can meet and talk about our church if you want to. We're not getting better. We become more dependent. We, we learn how to lean on him more. But I believe the longer we walk with Christ, the worse off we see we are. That's why Paul would say stuff early on in ministry about being least of the apostles. That's why later in ministry he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Because he sees more and more and more. It's not that I'm getting better, but God sure is. It's not that I'm, I, I'm at this point where I don't still blow it at times, but God still holds on to me. He keeps his children. And if you're one of those, he's saying you're the kind of person I want to use. And here's why, because our world is full of broken people who have no one to put them back together. Early this morning, I got a text message sitting in the hotel room from a guy, and I've been using his story for, well, since last Sunday. Because <laughs> last Sunday, he came down front of our church, and he, he shook my hand, and he was, he was teary-eyed. And he said, I want you to pray for me. And I said, whoa, before I pray, I said, I talked to you on Friday about something. For about half an hour, you and I talked about your need for Christ. And I've been talking to you about it for over 15 years. I said, tell me, first of all, what'd you do with what I said? This is in front of the church, like down here after the invitation in this part. And he looked at me, so I, I, I did that yesterday. I gave my life to Christ yesterday. And I was coming down to have you pray for me because I want to be a part of this church. You missed it. For 15 years, at least that long. That's how long I've been counting at least. I've been sharing Christ with this guy. Jesus changed him radically sitting in his own house. And here's the text I got this morning. He's a contractor. He said, I'm so far behind on these three jobs. I got I to gotta go in today and I don't want to, but, but I've got to go in so that the, so that the banking and the, and the transactions fall just right. My crew needs this and I got to go help them. 
He said, but you, you go back and tell all the people who've called me since last Sunday to invite me to Sunday school that I'll be in class next Sunday. And the lady I sat by, I borrowed her pen while I was sitting beside her last week. Tell her and her husband, I'll have her pen. If she's there Wednesday night, I'll bring it back because I'm coming to get in the Bible study. You're missing it. What's different about that dude? He's somebody who was broken. And no matter how many times he talked to me, I couldn't fix him. If you met him, you couldn't fix him. But on a Saturday, he went to Jesus. He had heard the gospel and he bowed down in his own house, gave his life to Christ. And here's what he's talking about. This guy who was so lost now talks about, it feels so good to not have this guilt. And I know, I know I have a purpose now and God is working on me and I'm reading my Bible and I'm learning and I'm growing. And here's what he said. He said, thank you that you didn't give up on me. And all I could tell him back was, dude, it was my pleasure. Because I'm glad nobody gave up on me. And even if people give up on you, God does not give up on you because he can use your testimony to help a whole lot of people. Those are the kind of people that we need to stand up and fight for the faith. You keep reading. Not just people, but there's passion. The passion that drives us to fight for our faith. Amen. Verse 2. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. He's described himself. He's given a description of the audience. And now he starts unpacking his passion for these people. These people to whom he writes, they're part of his family of faith. They are those who have heard and believed in Jesus Christ and they believe on the same Christ and they're just as saved as Jude is. And now Jude starts conveying all of his affection toward these people for three things. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. You and I have to be driven by a passion to see people know God's mercy. Do you understand what mercy is? Grace and mercy are closely akin. I believe almost twins, but they ain't the same. Grace is God issuing out what you don't deserve. Mercy is the exact opposite. Mercy is God holding back what you do deserve. Mercy is God holding off the result or consequence deserved by you and I, the recipient. You see, for God to graciously give us heaven, he mercifully holds back hell. You're missing it. For us to enjoy grace, God must enact mercy. Okay, let me see if I can do it different. If God blessed you and graced you with water, to drink, you need mercy so you don't choke on it when you drink it. If God graces you with food on your table, he must hand you mercy so you don't choke when you eat. He says, I want you to know mercy. 
I want it to be multiplied in your life to understand you are guilty, worthy of just condemnation, but the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary made this mercy accessible in a way no other sacrifice ever has or ever will. You're not going to work your way right with God. You're not going to figure it out one day. Guys, we are the worst shade tree mechanics in the world when it comes to working on our life. How long have you been tinkering on your life and it's still messed up? You've been getting this right for the last 30 years and it still ain't right. Take that stuff to Jesus. Our good old Americanism says try, try, try. That's not Bible. The Bible never says try, try, try. The Bible teaches yield, yield, yield. Stop trying and give up. When you give up, so much of your life is different because the Lord says, now I can step in. Now I'll do through you and for you what you cannot do for yourself. Mercy. And then he says, peace. The term here talks about the tranquil state of the soul enjoyed by those who are redeemed by Christ. Amen. Notice what I said, the tranquil state of the soul, that's in here. Amen. Too many of us have allowed the world to define words for us, and you think that peace is a certain size house and a certain amount of money in the bank and a certain amount of health on the report from the doctor. No, ma'am, no, sir. Peace is not anything to do with what's going on out here. Peace is no matter what storms break loose out here in my life. If you could look inside, my soul is smooth. Not, not because I've got it all figured out, not because I know it, but because I serve the Christ who's living in me by the Holy Spirit and nothing that comes against me is going to be able to destroy me because greater is the Christ in me than the devil in the world. That's peace. He says, I want people to know that. The next one is love. The term here is the unconditional, unmerited type of love. It's the love that exudes not from the character of the one receiving it, but from the very character and choice of the God who is loving. God does not love us for what's in us. He loves us because of what's in him. God does not love us based on what's in us. He loves us based on what's in him. This is how the Christian is able to love everybody because you're not loving any other person based on what's in them. You love them based on who's in you. I think you missed it. You, you don't know what they did. I don't, but I know who you said's in you. You don't know how they treated me. I sure don't, but I know you said Jesus lives in you, and if Christ is in you, Christ in you can love through you to love them. He says, I want people to know that kind of love. The term here is used to reference those who are called, those who are sanctified, those who are preserved. He says, I want it multiplied in your life. How do you have that multiplied mercy and peace and grace? Well, here it is. This happens when you learn how to rest in him and you walk in him and you receive more and more from him. You rest in it, you walk in it, and you receive more of it. 
Learn how to just sit down in the mercy of God. Stop trying to prove yourself to God. He rescued you from you. Stop trying to prove you to him. He rescued you from you. Sit down and enjoy the mercy of God. Stop being so busy in serving. And sit down and soak up his presence. In so many of our churches, we've got people so busy. They don't have time to even sit down and enjoy God. We burn people out. There's always something else to do, another function to be at, another thing to go get involved in. No, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is sit down. Get still. Come apart before you come apart. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. Listen to what he said to the disciples in Mark 10, 45. As they wrestle and argue about greatness and who's going to be the greatest of them all. And then the greatest of them all says this. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's the idea. I'm doing what you can't do and I'm doing it on your behalf to purchase what you can't purchase, but to lay down a pattern that you follow. That's got to be your passion. Do you really want to see people different? I mean, you think about how many people in, in your town, in your city of Lebanon, who are going to die and, and slip into eternity unready to meet Jesus. Because we, we ain't talking about him. We're not telling people. You, you know, they got that group at the church that goes and they go out and talk about him. Yeah, but that's your friend, though. Y'all drink coffee together. Y'all hang out. God has built a bridge into their life for you. What's your passion for them? I know you want your kids and grandkids to go to a certain school and, and get a certain degree and have a certain kind of life, but what good is all that if they attain all that and their souls still be lost? What's your passion? I had a coach in high school. And every football play we'd run, you had the, the actual play and the quarterback had to perform what you call a fake. And so if there's a give here and the running back takes the ball, he would fake a pitch here. And we started noticing like on every play, the defense was just hammering the guy who was getting the ball. Like they knew where it was going. And our coach made a statement. He said, boys, you can't fake faking. <laughs> if you're going to fake it, fake it for real. If you're going to hand it off and fake the pitch, fake the pitch like you're really pitching the ball. Like if you're going to hand it here and pitch it here, don't hand here and do that. That's not fake enough. You got to sell out into it. This Christian thing. Stop trying to get your toes in the water. Stop trying to test it. Stop trying to figure out, is it going to be cool with everybody around me if I go do this and just cannonball into the water? Just go jump into it headlong and never look back. Then your passions are different. The last piece of this, 
for today. Talked about the people, passion, but now the problem that calls us to fight. It starts in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. I love Jude 3. I love it. And one reason I love this verse so much is because I see the humanity of Jude in that verse. I can see Jude as a guy just like me. And in verse 3, Jude's a guy who's struggling. In a very human way, in a very plain, bottom shelf kind of way, here's what Jude is struggling with, and we all struggle with it. You won't see it. There's what I want to do, and there's what God told me to do. Okay, you missed it in the language. I'll read it again. While I was making every effort, I was applying everything I had to write to you about our common salvation. That's what I want to do. I felt the necessity. God said, you ever felt that? You know what I'm talking about? You want to do something and you feel God lean in on you? And you can't explain it, but you can't breathe right? Can't focus? Because something ain't right. I mean, I, I love the Lord, but I want to go hang with my buddies, but Every time I hang with my buddies, they want to call me back into drinking. And, and I'm struggling. And I told them I was coming. Yeah, sit down in there for a minute. Some of those friends God's trying to weed out of your life, at least for a season, to get you built up, they're texting. But every time you get with them, you go somewhere you don't need to go. And you do stuff you don't need to do. And the day they text and you're about to reply, you, I mean, hey, even right after church, man, we're going to get together. Mm. You feel that. That's where Jude is. This is what I want to do, but the Lord has laid necessity on me. He's constrained me to appeal to you, to contend earnestly for the faith. We have to be willing to contend. There comes a point where there's some things in this life that are worth fighting for. Hard stop, period. I had some guy ask me one time, and it was one of the most, most moronic questions I'd ever heard in my life, but I entertained him. If somebody broke in your house, what would you do? Well, we're not praying right now. I'm not going to lay there and say, Lord, would you please evict him from the premises? No, I got something in the nightstand that's going to help with that. <laughs> and when I finish all this in that, but I'm going to drop that magazine out, drop another one in. If anybody else is out there, they're going to get some too. Why? Here's why. Because I stood at an altar and I told Almighty God I would protect her and my children. Before I married her, I went to talk to her daddy. I was scared to death. I'm a head taller, 100 pounds heavier, but I was scared of that man. 
And we sit in the restaurant and I'm shaking. I'm just glad there's other people around, you know. <laughs> but I gave my word. I take care of her. What do I look like standing behind my five foot five wife talking about baby getting? <laughs> no. Some things, some people you fight for. And I love Tiffany. And even more, I love Jesus. And you can be fine until you start bothering my family or my Christ. He says, earnestly fight for these things. What? Because he says, this faith was once for all delivered. It was handed down to the saints. We, we don't need to modify this. But there are people trying to modify it. There are people saying that the reason Jesus came was for you to have a big house and a, a big car and a, and, a, and a plush lifestyle. It's called prosperity gospel. It's pervasive in our culture and it's sick and it's unbiblical. Because to get to prosperity gospel, you actually have to go back and reinterpret the teachings and the ministry of Jesus. I have a question for you. If, if Jesus didn't want anybody to get sick and die, if he didn't allow that, if he was about making you completely well, then why would he allow the original 12 to all die? So how you know they died? You met them? <laughs> I guarantee you, if Peter was in Lebanon, everybody would know. That's one perversion. Let me give you another modern-day perversion. We've made everything in our world about color. That is so not of God. There are not races of people. There's a human race. Our paint jobs may vary. The exterior may look different, but if you cut any human being, they bleed red, and when they don't, get them to the hospital. But we're letting people tear up churches and destroy lives by categorizing people. If you're this color, you are by default hateful. And then here's the ungodly other piece of that. And there's nothing you can do about it. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I thought Jesus specialized in transforming people. For you to get me to where you are, you're saying Christ doesn't have the power to transform people. That's a lie from the pits of hell. Yes, he does. He says this has been once for all handed down to us. We contend, and here's why. We contend because we face the threat always of corruption. There's always the idea, the threat of somebody sowing something into the gospel to twist it. That's in verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says certain people, they creep in unnoticed. They, they came in under the radar. And they start trying to taint the gospel. If I could help you in any way today, I would tell you this if you'd listen to me. You need to be way more concerned with the substance being preached than the style of the preacher. 
So many of us will follow a lie off a cliff because it sounds good and won't take one step toward the truth because it's hard. He says these folk came in unnoticed and here's the reality. They were long beforehand marked out. Here's the idea. You've heard the writing and the telling about these folk before they showed up. When you read scripture, scripture is jam-packed with the idea of false prophets rising up even amid true prophets. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Listen to Jesus again. Matthew 24, 11. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Christ again, Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders and so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. How do we know? How do we figure out who they are? How do we test what they're saying? I'm so glad you asked me. You got this. You take everything you hear, you stand it up beside the Bible, and anytime there's any variation, the problem is not on the side of the book, it's on the side of the dude talking. Here's one of our problems. We'll watch people, and when they veer off, it's because we like them. Well, you know, I, I just don't believe they do that. If you get away from this, I don't care who you are. The book ain't wrong. That's you. Look at what he says they do. They're guilty of two things as we wrap up. He says they're ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That idea there is lewdness and evil. The word that you have translated there is a word that means completely lacking in moral restraint, usually with the implication of sexual lewdness our entire world is rife with this evil and I don't say this trying to be abrasive or hurtful or unconsiderate or unloving but we must speak the truth in love we have gone so far in the loss of our own mind that we're sitting down actually entertaining the question can God be wrong to make boys boys and girls girls I'm headed back to Memphis when we're done. <laughs> but at some point, we must sit down and say, can God possibly get this wrong? No. And we want to pull up beside you. We want to walk with you, love you, help you. We want to show you the love of Christ, but we cannot turn the word of God a single centimeter. That's where we are, though. It's not new. The other thing they do, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. But see, it doesn't sound so bad because here's kind of how it comes out. Well, I'm, I'm not sure if Jesus is the only way. Lean up and I'll tell you a secret. If you're not sure if he's the only way, I'm real sure you ought to stop talking. 
Like, don't, don't lead anybody. Just go sit down until you figure that out. But don't be up in front of people leading people and you don't know the answer to that one. If you're not sure about him, I'm sure about you. I'm sure you should not be leading folks if you're not sure about who Jesus is. All that said, guys, I'm saying it because we got to stand. This message, this message I actually preached at Faith last Sunday. Let me contextualize this for you. Church I pastor is 30 years old. You know what 30 years is? It's the upper end of a generation. We're celebrating a generation. Our church is a generation old. And I don't know, maybe just because God built me to be that guy, I don't know. But here's how I, I contextualize the celebration. God has given us a generation. But he did not promise we'll get another one. Let me bring that home to you. The only Christianity that will exist for your kids and your grandkids is the one you share. Because there's the real possibility. Faith in your family line goes extinct when you die if you don't tell them about Christ. October 23rd, my mother passed away. My youngest son is down there on the front row. He's five. My two oldest children are there. Those two middle boys we said we're praying about picking up, those are the ones that are camping. <laughs> we're really going to pick our kids up. <laughs> but you know, my, my five-year-old, he doesn't have the same memory bank about my mom that my older children have. And how do I ensure that he knows about his grandmother? I got to teach him. If, if he doesn't feast on the lesson she taught me, it's not her fault. Because she taught me. And I'm charged with teaching him. And if I don't teach him, those teachings go, stink, go extinct in my generation. Don't make it to him. Let's ratchet that up to the real level. You said Jesus changed you. You said he made your life different. You said he gave you purpose. And you said he gave you hope. And you said you'd never be the same. And praise God he did that. But what a tragedy is going to be if we don't go tell the next person and the next generation about what Christ has done. Not only does your faith go extinct when you die, that person you didn't tell and doesn't, doesn't know, that never heard the gospel, they're going to hell when they die. And here's the truth. You can't save anybody. He never told you to. We don't save, we share. So who you telling? That's how you fight for the faith. You take this book and you open it. I told some people in a banquet on Friday. I said, man, we have so overcomplicated the recipe for church. We have. It's not the bells, whistles, 
bottle rockets and firecrackers. Here's the whole concept. It started with Jesus. Got a group of folks. He changed their life. He said, learn about me and go tell other people. And when you go tell other people, I'm going to change their life. And you teach them about me. And then teach them to go get somebody else. And tell them about me. And I'm going to change their life. And they're going to spend the rest of their life learning about me. And as they do, tell them to go get somebody else. And when they get somebody else, I'm going to change their life. And they're going to start learning about me. And guess what? Tell them I say it, go get somebody else. And when they go to somebody else and tell them I'm going to change their life. And when I change their life and they start learning about me, guess what? They go tell, you, you kind of get it? They're going to go tell somebody else. And when they go tell somebody else, I'm going to change their life. See how it kind of keeps going? That's the recipe. So as I wrap up today, and I end today, there are two great questions that I want to end with for you to think about. Because when we die, they're all that's going to matter. I think the first question we're going to hear in eternity is one that comes from the Father. And here's a question. What have you done with my son? What have you done with my son? There's a member of our church who has our two boys. And when I get to his house this afternoon, the first people I want to see really ain't him. Love him. I love Dan. But I want to see them. I want to know what he would do with my sons. I really don't want to see his gun collection. I, I'm really not concerned when I first get there about what his wife cooked. Some of y'all call it. I want to know what you do with my boys. I think that's the father's first question when we show up in heaven. What'd you do with my son? That's about your eternal home. Here's the second question. And I think this comes from the son. What'd you do with my word? First question is about eternal home. Second question is about eternal reward. What'd you do with my word? You take it in. Hide it. You take it in. Now let me show you. So I'm going to pray for us and ask us to stand. I'm not sure how you guys do it right here. They told me I could invite, so I'm going to invite. I, I think it's a sad thing to preach and then not let you, hey, let's do the stuff. <laughs>